Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. And you'll see that there are a few different parts to the reading, Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14, and that's page 54, page 54 in your black Bibles, or 63 in the large print. Exodus chapter 12, beginning at verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses." If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. The people bowed their heads and worship. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord has commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Just put your eyes down to verse 40. We'll read from verse 40 to the end of the chapter. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. 
It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat, may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hard worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, and on that very day the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Amen. Could you turn back in Exodus to chapter 13? Our reading goes on for a little bit more. Exodus chapter 13, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 16. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among you, your sons, shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. 
It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Amen. As we saw last week, we've been looking at the Passover last week and this week, and these two passages kind of uh, it's been kind of intertwining. And last week, if you remember, if I can remind you, we focused on on the way that in Christ God is bringing us to something new, a new existence, a, a new life. If you remember, it came through death. So we saw the death of the enemy, the death of the Lamb, our substitute, and even our old selves. They died with Christ. But there's a problem, and the problem is this. We're really quick to forget the new. It's like sand slipping between our fingers. What we once knew just disappears. Now, we do this in normal life loads. You know, you just take the example. You decide to reorganize your kitchen, say. You know, the, the old way just wasn't working. You had too many plates, or your food cupboards were too small, and you, you start that reshuffle. You know, everything comes out, and then everything in, in their new, good, and right place, and it all fits. But then you come back the next day, and what happens? Well, straight away, you go to the wrong cupboard, don't you? We know this. And then it gets worse because you end up actually opening most of the cupboards to find the one thing you wanted. You know, as the, the new begins, we're so quick to forget it. We need reminding again and again, no, no, the plates are now in this cupboard. And how much more when it comes to the gospel? We can be so utterly prone to kind of spiritual amnesia. We forget what matters. We forget what it means. We forget God, who he is, what he's done. And it just kind of slips to the back of our mind. We forget the new. And this matters because as we forget the gospel, so our lives begin to slip back to the old life. Our worship becomes heartless. Our sins begin to fight back. Our hope drops. Our, our life can begin to spiral downwards further and further from the, where the new was taking us, further from God's. Perhaps you've noticed that in your own life. You've had a, I don't know, a few weeks away from church, away from reading your Bible and praying, and you just beginning, begin to notice your love for God drifting. Your, your love for the church, well, you can't be bothered uh, anymore. You find yourself actually a bit more uptight in life. You've uh, perhaps escaped more to the bottle or the games console or, or, or looked at porn again. And it's because and it's we've forgotten the gospel. And we know it's not the way it should be. But God is kind. God is kind and he gives us wonderful ways to remember, ways to have the beautiful doctrines of grace come to the fore again in our hearts and minds. You know, like waking up again and remembering something's good's happening today. As we hear the gospel again, oh, it brings life, doesn't it? And what's striking is that God helps us to enjoy the new life today that he's given us, not by simply pointing us to the now, to my life now. He's not like, just, just be present in the now, you know, just be mindful of what's here before you. No, instead he does it by reminding us of events of the past to keep us enjoying and living the new life he has for us. He takes us to what happened back then. Now in the Old Covenant, as we're going to see, he did it through festivals, ceremonies, through sacrifices and rituals. But he does it too in the New Covenant, but in a much simpler way, through what the church has called the means of grace. 
He reminds us through the preaching of his word, through the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. God takes us back. He takes us back to these events of the past, events though that are so powerful and profound that they transform our present in every way. And here, wrapped up in the Passover, as you were going to see, God gave them three festivals. I don't know if you spotted that as we read this through. Three festivals to keep year after year after year um, in, in their life. Firstly, we've got the Passover itself. That was especially in chapter 12, verses 21 to 28. We'll come to that. Then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You might have heard, uh, hear that repeated. We had that in 12, 15 to 20 that David read. And then in the bit I read, 13, 3 to 10. And then there was the third one, the consecration of the firstborn. That was in 3 verses 1 and 2, and then 11 to 16. Three ceremonies, three celebrations, events regularly occurring in the life of God's people to remind every generation of them uh, of what happened in the past. These festivals, they, they bring those generations into the drama. So they keep remembering, always remembering the continuing significance of that past event for them now, this day, this year, and then the coming year. That past changes everything forever. And what's kind of the big thing they need to remember? Well, we see it, I don't know if you noticed, there were three moments when the people are told what to say when their kids ask them what's going on. I don't know if you spotted that. We had it in 12, 26, and 27. And when your children say to you, we've then got it in 13, verse 8, uh, you shall tell your son on that day. And then 13, uh, 14, and when in time to come your son asks you, let's just read uh, this one, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out. The Lord, our covenant God, he's rescued us. That's what we're remembering. The Lord is my salvation. It's his strong hand. God's people need reminding that he has done something extraordinary in their corporate life. That changes everything. And as we saw last week, this really does all point to our salvation in Jesus Christ. All of God's acts of salvation come together in him. Do you remember last week that, that death of the enemy, the lamb and the old us, it's all found its truth in Jesus. He's the true destroyer. He's the true Passover lamb. He's the true firstborn son. God rescues us in Christ. So just to help us understand, if, if these old covenant ceremonies and festivals point to God's salvation, and God's salvation all culminates in Christ, then these festivals, well, then they give us a window on all that Christ has done for us. They point us to the wonderful truth in Christ. They teach us to remember. But just one more thing, kind of as an introduction, but as we look at Exodus this evening, God doesn't get us to do these festivals again. We're not going to start doing the festival on love and breads. Although they they point to us to Christ from behind, so to speak, Jesus has given us the Lord's Supper to point to us uh, back to him. Because Jesus, if you remember, celebrated the Lord's Supper when on the night of the Passover. Uh, So as we get into these three festivals, what we're going to do, we want to let them remind us of the wonderful truths of the gospel. But as we do, we're just going to take a little bit of time to reflect on the Lord's Supper itself and how it does the same. Uh, Because we'll be taking it again next week, 
uh, in the evening. And so I hope as we spend some time on it tonight, we might just have our view of it enriched to his praise and glory. So that's introductory, but let's see what we, with all of God's people, always need reminding of if we're to live in the new. Okay, so let's see that. Firstly, God rescued us through a death. God rescued us through a death. So if you remember, from the year of leaving Egypt until probably about AD 70, when the Romans destroyed the temple, the Jewish nation celebrated Passover every year, celebrating Passover with a sacrifice of a lamb. If you ever look back at 12 verse 24, so he's having uh, described the killing of the lamb and the use of the blood. God says, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And then it was kind of the first, one of the first things God's people did as they entered the land under Joshua. And then uh, when the, the law was found again under Josiah, what did they do? They celebrate the Passover. When Jesus was ministering, John mentions three separate Passovers. This was a festival to keep. And as we saw last week, this lamb, this lamb, it was a death in the place of his people. That was the teaching point from it, end of verse 27 of chapter 12. For God passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. We were spared because the lamb died instead. God rescued us through a death. So just imagine each year the Passover lamb being killed. It's blood spilt on the, the tabernacle altar, on the temple altar, and it, it kind of drips over the sides. The life extinguished from that little lamb. A death has happened. And as families at home sat down that evening to eat meat, meat of a dead animal, chewing on it, swallowing it each and every year, reminded God rescued us through a death. We're here because, spared because the lamb died instead. We're here now in the promised land because of a substitute, a sacrifice in my place. We're saved by a swap. I was reading recently how some some Jews today say this emphasis on the blood is misplaced. The the lamb, it was just a symbol of Egyptian gods. And so the Passover is, is just about leaving Egypt. But that avoids this language of being spared, of being passed over, of the blood being put up as a sign on the doorposts for God himself. God's people, each and every time they came to the Passover, were to see a substitute in their place. God providing a way out. God providing a means to be safe in his presence. God rescued us through a death. And it's the same with us. Who we are now depends on that past event. Christ's death in our place. That's why we're here. I'm a Christian because Christ died for me. He suffered for me. He took the punishment for my sin. He bore God's wrath. And we need to be reminded of this again and again because we can be so quick to forget that Christ has done it all that it really worked, that forgiveness has actually happened. Just, just think back to a moment when you did something that you really regret, that you really regretted. Now in the moment, we often feel a temporary sick feeling of guilt and shame, don't we? And in, in one way that's right. 
Sin is wicked. It is against God and it's worthy of guilt and shame. And and that initial response is the beginning of repentance. It should move us towards Jesus. But we all know actually sometimes something else can happen instead. We we might think, I, I, I I can't come to God now. I've just sinned. I, I need time for his, his anger just to pass. He won't want to hear from me right now. And we, we kind of pick up that sin and throw it into a bag on our backs. So I, I better carry it for a while. I know Jesus paid for it, but perhaps I need to just pay for some of it so then I can come to God again. And then we throw another sin into the bag and, and another, and the sack on our backs just gets heavier and heavier. And the next day, that guilty burden just weighs us down. And despair sinks in. Oh, I'm such a bad Christian. What's the point? We need reminding of Christ crucified. He fully paid for all my sin. I can come to God washed clean now and always. He died. He did it all. I'm justified. We need reminding of the words Jesus spoke that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Why? Because our sin is gone. He's died. Let Christ take the bag from your back. Listen to how John Bunyan puts it in his famous allegory, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. It's about a man called Christian experiencing the Christian life. And he said this, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall and that wall was called salvation. Up this way therefore did burdened Christian run and not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending and upon that place stood a cross and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher, that means a grave, So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Isn't that wonderful? We need reminding that God rescues us through a death. Or perhaps you might forget this in a different way. You just start thinking, you don't need the cross anymore. My sin's not that bad. I can work my way to God. And pride just starts to seep in. Why bother with Jesus at all? I'm fine, thanks. I'm good at this Christian thing. You know, I I do church well. I give my money well. And we begin to kind of ignore our faults and just think the world should be happy to have me in it. And we've forgotten. We're rescued through a death. It humbles us. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, Christ's words of institution point us once again to the same. He said, this is my body which is given for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. For you, Christ's body was given and his blood poured out for you, for us, 
instead of us, on our behalf, as we place that bread into our mouth, we're being reminded a true and real substitute was given for us. His body died, not ours. As we sip that small amount of wine and let it slip down our throats, it was his blood that was poured out. His life was extinguished. It was on him that the world went black. It was him who was forsaken by God. He suffered the righteous judgment of God for me. For me, he took that penalty for me. What wonderful grace. He rescued us through a death. So that's the first feast, the feast of the Passover. Let's now turn to the feast of the unleavened bread. Because here we're reminded God rescued us to live. God rescued us to live. So for this festival, each year, for a whole week, God's people were to eat only unleavened bread. You can see that in 1218. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, so the 14th is the day of the Passover, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. It's striking, isn't it? A whole week, every time you go to have a piece of bread, it's just flat bread, crispy. You know, every time you kind of hear it snap in your hands or crunch in your mouth, it's a reminder. A reminder of what? Well, it's a reminder of this, that the old has gone and the new is ahead. That God has rescued us to live. Let me explain why. Because this, this feast, it takes them back to that moment that Israel are thrust out of Egypt into a life beyond. Uh, we didn't read this this week, but if you have a look at 12 verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. Well, then verse 39, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So as every time God's people, year after year, celebrated the feast of unleavened bread, they were being reminded of leaving in a hurry, of being thrust out. Bread should have time to rise, but not this time. They were off. They were off into a new world, leaving that old life behind, entering the new. God had rescued them to live. But these seven days, well, they give a sense that this was a life on the move. It wasn't just a feast and then done with. It lasted day after day after day, seven days. And so it reminded them that living as God's people wasn't just a one-off moment. You know, the day after the Exodus wasn't kind of everything sorted and whoop-de-doo. No, they were, they were entering a new way of life, a journey, a journey towards the wilderness, a journey towards that mountain of God. They became pilgrims, believers on the way. Now, on, on long car journeys, we've recently re-entered the phase of our youngest children asking, are we there yet? Uh, and that's at the start of a six-and-a-half-hour journey south. Um, our kids need to understand that that journey, it just goes on and on and on. But it's true of life, isn't it? The new, it, can, it continues. This Feast of Unleavened Bread connects us both to the beginning of the new, with that, but with the journey of life. It's a fresh start that lasts. It's reminding them God has rescued us to then live, 
to live a wonderful life that he has for them. But to live in the new also requires us to leave that all behind. And that's also bound up in this unleavened. Because leaven uh, was often in an old bit of dough. So you had um, an old bit of dough that had yeast in it. You'd then mix that into the new batch of dough to spread the yeast through the new batch. But Israel, they're leaving that old dough behind, that old batch of leaven. It's sitting in those cupboards of Egypt. The new is a completely new break, a fresh start. If they're ever going to make new leavened bread uh, again, it would have to come from somewhere fresh, not a hint of it from Egypt. And Paul picks up on this idea of 1 Corinthians. He's saying we mustn't be people of the old life, the old leaven of Egypt. And he, he, he says people of malice and evil. Instead, we're, we're rescued to live, to live God's new life, a life of sincerity and truth. It's, it's fresh, it's new, it's separate, unleavened bread. God's rescued us to live. Now, we just need reminding of this, don't we? Because I'm amazed how quickly my eyes can move from being set on God's ways back to the old. How I can let it seep its kind of dark tentacles back into my life. I wonder if, I wonder if we're particularly tempted to, to turn our eyes back to worldly glory. I know I am. I, as we leave Egypt, we kind of glance back over our shoulders to what we've left behind. That's wealth, success, popularity, glory. It's the same, isn't it? As we perhaps see middle-class values of education, success, a nice house, a better job, better holidays abroad, a faster car, smarter clothes, and that they're wonderful things, but we can forget we're on a way to a better place. They start consuming our time and our energy. They become our only ambitions for our children. We let them consume our worries, our plans. And, and so we start laying worldly burdens on our back again. We've forgotten the simple, unsophisticated, unleavened bread in our packed lunch. We're pilgrims on a way. The old is behind and the new is ahead. And the Lord's Supper once again reminds us of this because it too is a meal for the way. It's to nourish us with Jesus Christ as we follow him. Just think of, of, who, of how Paul put it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a meal Paul's expecting us to do more than once. For as often, he said, it's a meal we have regularly. But it's also pointing us to beyond, to Christ's return. We're on our journey towards an end point when Christ comes back. The Lord's Supper, it's like a, a feeding station as we run a marathon. It's like a motorway restaurant as we travel long miles across the country. But more than just a reminder, by faith as we sit and eat and drink, we're, we're participating with the one who's now alive. You know, as we eat the bread and wine, we're being brought somehow by the Spirit to the living Christ himself, to the resurrected Jesus, the Jesus who was dead but is now alive. And so we live our lives in him. The old is gone and we're with the new. We've been rescued to live, to live in Christ. So God's rescued us through death. He's rescued us to live. And lastly, 
God rescued us as his own. God rescued us as his own. Here we come to the last ceremony bound up in the Passover. And it's the consecration of the firstborn. Bobby, you're going to sit down. Come to the last ceremony. It's the consecration of the firstborn. We know in the Passover, it was the firstborns who died and the firstborns that God saved. And so in a sense, every firstborn in every generation of God's people have a special link to God. They belong to him. If we look at 13 verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast is mine. Now the firstborn animals, they're dedicated to God through sacrifice. They're made completely out of our reach. They're only accessible to God in a sense because they've died. They're only his. You know, it's like properly giving a book you've borrowed back to someone. You, you put it in a parcel, you kind of sellotape it up, you put it in the post box, it's gone. It's theirs, not mine. And this, this sacrifice of animals happens to all animals unless they're unclean, uh, like donkeys. If you notice that, they, these need to be killed or bought back at a price. Now, humans, they are never sacrificed. It's a horrific practice by other nations. So God says, so that you remember that they belong to me, like the donkey, you need to redeem them. You need to pay a price for them. So if, if he's saying, like each of the firstborn in Israel who belong to me because I saved them, every firstborn after, they still belong to me, so you need to pay a price to show it. To show that you get this, they are mine. You know, it's like a dad giving his uh, kid a new car and asking just for a tenner in return, just to remind them this car truly belonged to me. But it's not just the firstborn that belong to God. I'm persuaded that God has chosen the firstborn here as a way of saying, you all belong to me. He speaks of one to represent everyone. You know, it's a bit like when you say, you know, nice wheels to someone. You don't just mean the person has nice wheels on their car. You're meaning that they've got a nice car as a whole. So the, the firstborn here is doing the same. He represents the whole. If you think about it, the, the firstborn relates to the father as the one who's going to inherit all that he has. He relates to the mother as the child who is the, the first fruit of her change into motherhood. He's the older sibling that all the other children look up to. But most fundamentally, God describes Israel, Israel as a whole, as his firstborn. So each and every time a family sacrifices a, a firstborn lamb or a goat or, or when they find out they're pregnant for the first time and they, they, they save up a price and, and, and pay or sacrifice another lamb um, once the child is born, each and every time that happened in the life of Israel, God's people are being reminded they all belong to him, that he rescued them as his own. God's people are his, his very own. And just them, did you notice that? We saw those with the restrictions on who eats the Passover. It's those who fully embrace God's covenant, whether a child of Abraham or a foreigner. But if they're secured by God's promises, symbolized in circumcision, then they're his. 
And knowing you belong to God means everything. You know, as we said the, the beginning, uh, the beginning of the year in the Heidelberg Catechism, I am not my own, but belong in body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We are his treasure possession. We're his children, his beloved, the one he delights over with singing like a, a besotted new parent. And yet once again, how quick we are to forget. We forget we're loved. We forget we're God's children with a father in heaven. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are. And so we become confused and lost. And as we do, our, our insecurities just can't help but reappear. Don't they? We, we worry about whether people like us or not. We worry about whether we're successful or not, or good or not, pretty enough, smart enough. Man becomes big as God shrinks from view. We think we belong to man, not God. But God has rescued us as his own. And if you're a Christian, as you take the Lord's Supper next week, may it be a great strengthening of your faith. May it seal upon your heart that those in Christ are his. That Christ gave himself for his own, for you, for his beloved, his bride. And also, might it also remind us that those around us are his too. The Lord's Supper, it's a family meal. It's for those who know and love the Lord Jesus, who are trusting in him. But it really is for all of those who trust him. So we take it together. Yes, it's me and the Lord, but it's also us and the Lord. God saved us to be his people, to be united to his true firstborn, Jesus Christ, the Lord of our salvation, the one who died so that we might be spared death, the one who lives so we might live a new free life with him, the one who unites us to him so we might truly belong. These are wonderful gospel truths. May the Lord remind you of them today and always. Amen.